Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Because when Jess and I left Lake Jackson three years ago, almost to the day, by all earthly wisdom, it was reckless. If math and memory may not be your strong suit, let me tell you, that means we left in June of 2020, in the middle of the largest pandemic that the world has seen in 100 years. We lived, left in a time where the only certainty was uncertainty. We left to go to a city where we had no jobs, where we knew absolutely no one, and we were kind of just hoping we were following God's will. One of my favorite theologians, the late R.C. Sproul, in a book he wrote called Everyone's a Theologian, wrote that we all kind of just guess about God's will. Anyone who tells you they know that they're following God's will doesn't really tell the truth. We can think, we can follow a lot of God's will, but really we don't know that we're following God's will until afterwards. And then we look back and say, yes, that was God's will, or no, it wasn't. And so we were pretty sure that we were following God's will. But it was reckless. We recklessly followed what we felt like God was calling us to because God is kind of reckless. Now, I know that people don't like to attach that word to God's attributes, and, and they argue quite rightly that God never is really reckless because he knows the outcome. It's hard to be uh, reckless when you already know what's going to happen. But those same people probably would say that, well, I've seen the hand of God work, or I just want to seek God's face. Y'all, God ain't got no hands. God ain't got no face. Right, so what we do is we, this is a big college word, we anthropomorphize God, meaning we attach human attributes to God. So when, I, you know, when we say that I've seen God do something, we often say we've seen the hand of God, or when we want to know God better, we, we ask to see God's face. But when thinking about what God does and who God is, I think that reckless is actually the only adjective that can really describe love and grace. Think of the song that we just sang that's conveniently titled Reckless Love. It describes God's love chasing us down, fighting until we're found, and leaving 99 to go find one. Now let's take a, uh, let's make this, you know, a, a little, little more concrete here. So let's say that I have, just out of the blue, maybe, I don't know, a hundred pairs of shoes. I don't know. I definitely don't. This is totally hyperbole. Um, maybe I, you know, maybe I have a, a linen closet full of shoes back home, and um, and I go on vacation, and I leave one pair of shoes. Right? Well, I get home, 
and I discover that I've lost a pair of shoes that I love almost as much as my own child. I'm sorry, Sparrow. Uh, but I would be so much more sad than most of you probably if I got home and, and didn't have a pair of shoes. I would want to get on the phone and call and search around and pay for shipping or maybe take a trip back down to where I was to find these shoes. And I would end up spending more money than those shoes are probably worth. I probably would be better off just buying a new pair of shoes or riding off that pair of shoes and saying, I've got 99, why do I need one more? It would be incredibly reckless for me to go search for that one pair of shoes. To our human understanding and sensibilities, leaving 99 to go get one is pretty reckless. Do you know that Jesus tells a story about this very thing? That song isn't just like poetry. That song is literally from Scripture. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a set of three stories. We call them parables. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them. We're going to be in the, the book of Luke. Luke is a gospel or, a, or a, 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 a biography of Jesus' life written by a man named Luke. And we're going to be in chapter 15. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible if you have a paper one. Uh, if you have a digital one, it's much easier to get to. Um, so Jesus here, to, to sum up sometimes, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Pharisees were the church people, some of us. They were the best of the best at worshiping and following God. And so Jesus tells three stories. I'll sum up the first two. The first one is that a shepherd has 100 sheep, and he loses one. And he has 99 left, and he leaves the 99, and he goes to search for the one. And when he finds the one, he celebrates. He throws a big party. The second story is about a woman who has 10 coins. She loses one coin. She tears apart her house. She sweeps up the place to find the one coin. And when she finds the one coin, she celebrates. And then Jesus begins this story in Luke 15, verse 11. So as Jesus continued that there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. 
So let's stop there for a moment. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard this story or this parable. It's often called the prodigal son. On the surface, what the younger son did was pretty bad. But if we dig a little deeper and we think about the context in which this story was told, we would see that this is probably the most despicable story these people could have heard. The son goes up to the father and he demands his inheritance. That's not great, but it's not that bad, right? It's his. No, it's not. Inheritance is only yours once the person who owns it has died. So what, ends, so what the first century hearers would hear is, Father, I don't care about your life. I wish you were dead. I want what's mine. Give it to me now. Your life has no value to me. That makes it a little worse, huh? That makes it feel like, man, this, this kid's not great. Well, then he, not only does he take, what his, what, you know, take from his father, but then he goes away from his father, which is extremely countercultural. People would grow up and live and die in the same towns. So he leaves his family. He takes everything that his father has worked so hard for, and he squanders it on self-indulgence. To the younger son, the present was all that mattered. Happiness and pleasure were his ultimate motivators. But soon he realized that he, he screwed up. When he's sitting there in a pig pen, looking at the pig slop, thinking, oh man, I wish I could eat that. He realized, okay, I've messed up, but I can fix this. I can get my way out of this. If I just go home, pull myself up by my sandal straps, and I serve my father, I can fix it. He assumed that if he got himself into it, he can get himself out of it. This is an apt description of people in the Pacific Northwest. Seattle has long been a microcosm of free thinking and, and cutting edge Western culture. It's a bastion of free thought where free living and happiness and pleasure and incredible self-indulgence reign supreme. Our friends and family think that the present is the only thing that really matters. What we as Pacific Northwesterners want far outweighs what we may need in the future. Our area is full of younger sons. Rejecting the heritage and legacy and traditions of their parents in order to find their own way no matter the cost. Like the younger son, the pursuit of each individual's peace and truth and happiness and reality or whatever buzzword you want to attach to it is paramount. Even if it costs someone else something. Now, Pacific Northwesterners wouldn't say that what they want costs somebody something, but everything costs somebody something. That's just the world we live in. Then there's the second piece of this younger son mentality. Once people in the Pacific Northwest realize that, that incredible self-indulgence is not very fulfilling, that hedonism doesn't bring them the happiness that they desired, we often turn to work. Well, if I just work hard enough, I can earn my happiness, right? If I just find the right yoga class, I'll find my center. If I spend enough time in nature, I can reconnect with the universe, 
If I feed enough unhoused people, I will get the cosmic scales in balance and everything will just be okay. We attempt to work our way out to the things that we value so much. This is the nature of lostness in the Pacific Northwest where we planted a church. There are 250,000 people within 15 minutes of our church building. 15,000 of them claim to follow Jesus. If math isn't your friend, that means that 235,000 people within 15 minutes of our building don't know Jesus. 235,000 younger sons. 235,000 people lost in searching for worldly pleasure or lost in searching for the work that will get them in right standing with God. This is why I believe that God recklessly sent us to Washington and why we recklessly followed. Because you see, God is the father in this parable. When the father sees the younger son coming, he runs to him, he wraps his arms around him. In fact, for the, for the father to have even seen him from a far way off means that the father was looking for him. The father was searching for him. And when the son comes back, the father gives him right standing immediately. He doesn't send the son away. He doesn't make the son work for it. He doesn't even ask to make sure that the son's repentance is real. He just throws his arms around them and he kisses him. He clothes him and he puts a ring on his finger. This ring is a signet ring, which shows that this son is in full right standing with the father, that he has authority, that he is a son again. And then he takes the fattened calf and he says, let's eat it. Now, meat was a really expensive commodity in this society. The fattened calf is like the, the, the meat that they have been waiting for. They take one calf and they just continually feed it. And they wait until it's just choice and prime and they use it. It's the most important meat that the people could think of. And the father says, you know what? That's the meat I want to use to celebrate my son. He rejoices that his son was, for all intents and purposes, dead. And now his son is alive. And he's going to hold nothing back in that celebration. You see, I left out an important piece of those first two stories. After Jesus said that the people who had found what they had lost through a party, Jesus ended by saying, so do the angels in heaven. Every time that a sinner repents. Every time that one person steps over the line of faith, all of heaven celebrates. So that's why this father is celebrating. But the story doesn't end there. See, act one of the story is, is really incredible. It's breathtaking and it really has me like ready to go. And I hope it has you ready to go loving, hurting, and broken people. It's not a story about us. It was once our story. But Jesus doesn't end this story with the first son. There's an act two. The second act is directed towards his audience. His audience is church folk, like me. Let's look at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother became very angry, and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, is found. As the elder son had done everything right. He never left. He worked hard. He obeyed. He was in right standing with the father. But when his younger brother comes home, somehow the younger brother is celebrated and not the older I can understand this frustration. I would probably be just as angry. But it goes even deeper than that this brother just didn't get a celebration. You see, if the younger son is welcomed back into the family, where does that inheritance come from? It comes from his. When the younger brother took half of the estate, now there was only half there, but it was all the brother's. But if they welcome the younger son back in, now that older son is half as rich, or if you grew up like me, twice as poor. So I get it. I empathize with the older brother. It would cost him something to forgive the younger brother. It would cost him a lot. Now I know that none of you look at your lost friends and don't want them to know Jesus. I know that none of you would, would cease celebration if a dead person came back to life. So knowing that, how does this older brother relate to us? Well, what's the older brother's justification for his anger? His words are that I have been slaving for you many years and I've never disobeyed your orders. Essentially, the older brother says, look how good I've been. Look how well I have obeyed. Look at all the work that I've done. Don't I deserve more? Friends, I'm some tattooed, long-haired, denim, sleeveless coat, hooded coat-wearing guy from the Pacific Northwest. So I'm not going to talk about you for the next couple minutes. I'm just going to talk about me, okay? If you feel like I'm talking about you, maybe that means there's something about you that you and God got to deal with. But I'm just talking about me. From now, for, for the next couple minutes, okay? Friends, I, I am like the older brother. I may not outwardly refuse to celebrate the lost coming home, and I, I probably wouldn't even do that inwardly. But I find myself going to God when people are getting to the things that I want, getting to the things that I prayed for, and saying something like this. God, I moved across the country for you. I gave up my life for you. I know your word. I obey your rules. I love people. I love my wife. I'm leading this church that you told me to plant. I did all of this for you. And even with that, even with all of those things that I did for you, I still had to watch my brother die. 
I still had to watch my baby die. I still have to check my bank account to make sure that my bills are paid. God, I still have sleepless nights asking all the time, did I make a mistake moving here? God, why do other churches grow but mine doesn't? Why do people get to have kids, more kids, and then we don't? Why do people get to live in their dream home while I can barely afford to pay the rent on someone's investment property? God, I did everything for you. Don't I deserve more than this? I can't believe that you would bless someone who's done less for you or done nothing for you. Because this isn't hyperbole. This isn't exaggeration. This is real. This is the reality for me. I am the older brother. While I believe that grace is free, and while I believe that I have been granted salvation through grace, by faith, so that I can't boast about it, somehow something inside me still thinks that I have to work to earn things. And when my standing with God depends on my ability to obey him and do the right things, I will fail to love and celebrate what God is doing in others. I'll fail to see what he's doing in other people's lives because my insecurity in knowing that I can't uphold God's law causes me to lash out. In my mind, there are people who are worse than me that have it better than me. In my heart, I then begin to think, well, maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And so I try harder. And this constant weight of work and worry, it's just exhausting. And because my soul is tired, I lash out like anyone does when they're tired. When I'm running on the energy that grace affords me, all is well. Love abounds. The fruit of the Spirit is evident in my life. But when I start to put on a works-based righteousness, I begin to carry the burden of my standing with God on my back. I begin to believe that it's dic- that how well and how moral I am, how well I obey God, how much I love and how much I do depends on how right I am with God. And then my soul gets tired because it was never made to carry that burden. In the Pacific Northwest, just like here, older sons like me create younger sons. So many people that we have met in the Pacific Northwest don't want anything to do with Jesus, don't want anything to do with church, because all they know about church and Jesus is that there are a bunch of tired and angry people there. There are a bunch of Christians who are bitter and resentful. There are a bunch of Christians like me struggling to remember that the grace that saves us also sustains us. That it's always been that way, and it always will be that way, and it will always be free. Friends, this story isn't really about the first son, where it often gets its name, the prodigal son. Do you know what prodigal means? It means reckless. This story isn't even about the second son, 
The story is about the father. In both acts, the father is the one leaving everything behind to go seek and save that that which was lost. Both the younger son and the older son. He was the one who welcomed in the wantonly sinful younger son with open arms. He was the one who left the party to go save the wantonly elder brother and invite him in. The story is about a prodigal God. It's about reckless love. This story is why Jess and I went to Washington to watch God make dead people alive. This wantonly prodigal God. The last thing I want to pull from this story is who was the one that really should have been looking for the younger brother? Who was the one who should have been waiting with open arms to celebrate? Should have been the older brother. The older brother was there working for his father, thinking that's what his father wanted, when all his father wanted was his son to come home. But it was more comfortable, it was less reckless for the older brother to stay and to work. He could control things that way. He didn't risk anything that way. Friends, now I'm talking to you. Where in your life is God asking you to be a little more reckless or to take a risk? You see, one of the reasons that we like to be like the older brother is because the idea of free grace actually terrifies us. If grace is earned through works, then there's a limit to what can be asked of us. If we earn something, we have the right to it. And there's an agreement that we will be paid for the work that we do, and we can refuse the work we're not willing to do. But if grace is free, like the Bible teaches, then there's no limit to what God can ask of us. Because there is no limit to what God gives to us. We don't have a leg to stand on when we refuse to do what he asks if grace is free. And that is scary. I believe that much of what he will ask us to do is reckless to us. I believe much of what he may be asking you to leave behind will seem reckless to us. Much of what he asks us to do will not, what we have, will not be what we have earned or what we think we deserve. Maybe he's asking you to recklessly leave your home that you have paid off, your family that you love here, a job that you've worked for so long, and come with us on mission. It doesn't make sense for you to leave that job. It doesn't make sense for you to leave that family. You will lose money. You will lose a quality of life that you have been accustomed to. You will be surrounded by people who don't want you there. But friends, let's not be the, old, the elder brother of this story, but let's be this elder brother that Jesus wants us to be. He was the elder brother for us. He took on cosmic homelessness to help us find our home. 
He knows that forgiveness wasn't free, and he welcomed us home anyway after giving up everything he had. He welcomed us into his rightly earned inheritance. He left all that he knew. He was surrounded by people who hated him. He suffered and he was humiliated all so we could be invited in. God is the prodigal father, prodigal son. He's a prodigal God. Yeah, stand and sing with us.